Yarn. Yarn 19. How not to be a spy. This story is in two episodes. Episode 1. It's 1940. The world is at war. The Irish Free State is neutral territory. On the morning of the 5th of May, in a field somewhere in Ireland, a farmhand notices a curious figure approaching her. Good morning, Miss. Could I ask you one question before we proceed with our conversation? Am I in Free State era or the six counties in the north? You're in Ireland, sir. Welcome to it. Right. Can you be more specific? We're in Ballyvore, County Meath. What was that? Ballyvore, County Meath. But am I in era or the six counties? Well, you're in the Irish Free State, I suppose. The, the 26 counties. Ah. Yes, good. Are you? An airman? I'm a German airman, yes. I had to bail out. I was still wearing my Luftwaffe blue smock and jump overalls. This is Hermann Goertz. Well, to be precise, this is an actor playing the part of Hermann Goertz. It's Major Goertz or Dr. Goertz, but seeing as your main interest is my military exploits, it would only be right to go with Major. As you can tell, Major Goertz was quite a stickler for detail. I wasn't being stupid. It's a wartime legal requirement to wear your uniform during a drop. If you are caught as a spy, you could be shot on the spot. But if you could be recognized as a soldier from a sovereign nation, well then, the enemy was required to take you as a prisoner of war. Gertz parachuted into Ireland in the summer of 1940 on a secret mission on behalf of Nazi Germany. When I landed, I had no idea where I was but I suspected I was of course. His secret mission and his extended time in Ireland has gained almost mythic status. This is the true story of his adventures. It's full of espionage, ridiculous plans and larger than life characters. Years later, Gertz would write about his time in Ireland in a set of serialized articles for the Irish Times newspaper. By then, a long time had passed since the end of the war. And he was a man with a reputation for bending the truth. My apologies. <laughs> That's an obvious coming to life inside of me. References to Gertz also appear in the biographies of several prominent Irish figures he crossed paths with. And in 2003, the British Secret Service opened their files on the spy to the public. I'll be using all these sources to untangle the tale and retell it to you. The characters you'll hear are played by actors. Some of their dialogue has been dramatised, but they're all based on real people and actual situations. Let's go back to that field in Meath. Are you an airman? I'm a German airman, yes. I had to bail out. Which way to Wicklow? What? Really? Is it just yourself? Is this an invasion? It's just me. Is it far? Wicklow. Jesus, I don't know. About... A hundred miles, I suppose? If you point me in the direction of Wicklow and promise not to tell anyone you've seen me, I can give you 100 US dollars. See? Yeah. Oh, all right, so. It's, uh, well, let me see. Well, that's the east, so it's southeast, uh, that way. 
not planning on walking it, are you? The reason the German soldier wasn't quite sure of his location was because he had lost most of his equipment. He didn't even have a compass. I landed in a field in almost complete darkness. I desperately searched for the drop canister. German soldiers used to put most of their heavy equipment in a canister attached to a separate parachute that they threw out of the plane moments before they would jump out after it. The reason was because German parachutes and harnesses were pretty poor quality and couldn't support the extra weight. Soldiers hated the drop canister. It's a cylinder-shaped steel container. It housed my radio transmitter, a shovel and all my food provisions. The canister was painted dark green so it would not be easily spotted by the enemy. Unfortunately, it had the same effect on me. There was no sign of it anywhere or the second shoot it came down with. Proper procedure dictated that the paratrooper should bury his chute, but seeing as my shovel was in the canister and the canister was lost, procedure was pointless. That's when Gertz decided to just ask a local for directions. A somewhat unconventional strategy for a spy on a covert mission, but Gertz wasn't conventional. He wasn't even officially a spy. I was not officially a spy. I'm an officer of the German Air Force, not Abwehr. The Abwehr was the name of Germany's secret intelligence service. I'm not, nor never have been, an agent of Abwehr. All I wanted to do was fly and to do my duty, of course. Gertz was an unusual choice for an espionage mission. For one, he was 55 years old, a little past his prime for such a physically intense mission. He was a veteran Air Force flyer from the First World War. He fought on the Western Front and received the Iron Cross in 1917. After the war, he became an accountant. He married an Ambrose's daughter and they had one child. But the main reason he was such an odd choice was because he was already a famous spy, a bit of an oxymoron. He was caught by the British in 1936 and charged with espionage. The trial, held in London, received daily newspaper coverage. The English media dubbed him The Flying Spy is back in the Old Bailey today, charged with espionage against the Crown. Sketches and photographs of Orient aircraft and maps of military aerodromes were found on the kitchen table of the house. German guards rented in Broadstairs with his 19-year-old typist, Mary Ann Emick. The two travelled to Britain from Germany in July 1935. Miss Emick is not present in court. The trial continues. The house Gert shared with Miss Emick was conveniently located right next to Manston RAF Aerodrome. Nothing untoward happened between myself and Fraulein Emig. I employed her as my secretary. The press gleefully reported that the young Miss Emig was really Gert's mistress. Pictures of both of them were published in the newspaper. Gertz was captured, but Miss Emig managed to evade the authorities. At the time, Gertz claimed, I don't know where she is. I'm no longer in contact with her. The Home Office issued a message to all British ports in case Emig tried to re-enter the country. Announcement from the British Immigration Branch, Home Office, 30th of March, 1936. Miss Marianne Emig exited Dover on 23.10.35 on a ship bound for Germany. A copy of a photograph is sent herewith to all ports. She should not be allowed to land again in the United Kingdom. Description, height, 5 foot 7. Well built, dark brown hair, fresh complexion, walks erect and is of outdoor appearance. Fallon Emig was integral in helping me gain access to British airmen. Miss Emig would befriend RAF airmen stationed at the base 
and invite them to dinner at their house in Broadstairs, where, over a few drinks, Gertz and Emig would tease classified information out of the airmen. During the trial, Gertz's time in the witness box was widely reported, especially his exchanges with the Crown Prosecutor, Mr. Keynes QC, on the topic of his actions during the First World War. Was it not part of your duty to question flying officers captured by the German army? Yes, in 1918 the development of the American Air Force was most interesting to us. It was my duty to find out how quickly America could build up an Air Force. You were referred to as a dangerous intelligence officer. Is this because your interrogation methods were harsh? It's because my methods were successful. I treated every brought down pilot as a gentleman and a comrade. I invited them to dinner or luncheon, and in the excitement of being brought down, they told me really more than I wanted to know. I passed this information on to our intelligence service. Of course, but that doesn't make me a spy. The Crown Prosecutor moved on to question Gertz about the house he rented with Miss Emig. Here is an extract from the list of items found in the house you rented with Ms. Emig near Manston RAF Aerodrome. One set of binoculars, one camera with several lenses, photographs of various RAF airplanes and equipment, one sketch of Monston Aerodrome, one photostatic copy of said sketch, one bottle of lavender. Lavender, I'm told, is used for secret writing. Would you agree that these items would seem likely possessions of a spy-gathering intelligence? The bottle of lavender was purely for my personal use. I'm not pansy, but I'll admit I have a weakness for the slight spot of lavender on my handkerchiefs. I've never heard that it had any other clandestine use. And how do you explain the other incriminating items? As I said before, I was writing a book on British, American and German aircraft. Miss Emig was helping me transcribe my notes and interview airmen for the book. And what was the name of the publisher that had commissioned this book? I had not yet secured a publisher, but if you know of anyone who would be interested, please pass on my details, would you? No one believed Gert's story. I spent four years at His Majesty's pleasure, as they say. After his incarceration, Gertz returned to Germany, just before the outbreak of World War II. He took to drinking heavily and was openly mocked in social circles. He was destined to spend the rest of his life in obscurity, but Gertz had other ideas. It all started when he met an Irish emigre in Germany called Francis Stewart. Well, he was introduced to me at one of my St. Patrick's Day parties. I, I organise them every year in Berlin, you see. I invite various diplomats and, and businessmen with a view to encouraging business relations with Ireland. Stuart was a university lecturer and later produced Nazi radio propaganda broadcasts. He had married into a famous Irish Republican family. His wife was Isolde Stuart. Isolde's brother was Sean McBride, a former leader of the IRA. Sean's father was John McBride, who was executed by the British after the 1916 Irish Rising. Isolde and Sean's mother was Maud Gawne McBride, a prominent Republican suffragette and actress. Maud was immortalised in the poetry of W.B. Yeats, 
where he wrote of his unrequited love for her. Gertz was absolutely obsessed with my family connections. He wouldn't stop asking me about it. But not because of any political significance. Gertz was a fan of literature, you see. Poetry especially. He, he fancied himself as a bit of a writer. Well, he very much admired the works of W.B. Yeats, who was a close friend of the family, you might say. He could quote any Yeats verbatim. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. Stuart's initial impression of Gertz was that he seemed a bit of a social pariah. Well, he was an odd character. The German diplomats didn't care too much for him. They whispered behind his back and called him an imbecile. I think he had married well, although I never met his wife. He was generally liked by most people, especially ladies. Gertz thought his Irish drinking buddies could be his route back from obscurity. The more he learned about the history of the Irish struggle and the efforts of the IRA, the more he thought himself as perfectly placed to make a difference and to regain the respect he had lost after the flying spy incident. He also had the added advantage of having already visited Ireland. I spent a holiday in era in 32 with my wife. I love the country, so green and untamed. I became fascinated with the people and the culture. Gertz heard rumours that senior IRA figures were visiting Germany with the intention of forming an alliance with the Third Reich against their common enemy, Britain. He pieced together as much information as he could about the IRA based on conversations with his Irish contacts in Berlin. Then he approached his old Avar handler, Kurt Haller, with a proposition. If the IRA's capabilities are to believe, they could be very advantageous to us. Uh, Mr. Sean Russell, the chief of the IRA, recently visited Germany and pledged his organization's help to fight the British. Gertz never met Sean Russell in person, but he didn't tell Haller this. According to his report, the IRA are keen to help the Reich if it would help their cause for a united island. England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, he says. He claims that the IRA are still a formidable force, equipped with small arms and containing many sub-leaders experienced in guerrilla warfare. They may lack an understanding of advanced military tactics, but I'm sure they will make up for that with their enthusiasm, battle experience and local knowledge. And of course, their hatred of the British Empire. Gertz volunteered to drop into Ireland, rendezvous with the IRA, assess their capabilities and radio back his findings. The only problem was Gertz didn't have any direct contacts in the IRA. He didn't even know anyone in Ireland. That's when Gertz went back to Francis Stewart. My wife lives in Ireland with the children, so I said, half joking, that if he ever got into any trouble and as a last resort, you know, I stressed that it was a last resort, he could still call on her and, and, sh and she would help him out. Anyway, I gave him the address of our house in Wicklow, but oh, I, I never expected it to be his first stop. Haller approved Gertz for the mission, probably just to get rid of him. He provided Gertz with an old radio transmitter, a parachute, and a few hundred counterfeit US dollars. He told Gertz his primary goal was to encourage the IRA to focus their efforts on British targets in the north of Ireland. Any disruption to British infrastructure benefited the Reich. Haller was sceptical about the merits of the mission, but at least he wouldn't have to risk one of his prized Abwehr agents. There was nothing to lose. Gertz, of course, 
tells it a little differently. I was indeed handpicked for this mission, you see, by Dr. Halla of Abwehr. Let's go back to when Gert's first parachuted into Ireland. He had just got directions from a bemused but helpful farmhand. I slapped a roll of banknotes in her hand and ran off to look for cover. No radio, no food and no navigation equipment. I had two choices. Abandon the mission and give myself up or head for the only address I had in Era. The home of my Irish friend from back in Berlin. Hopefully his wife would help me. So Gert set off on the 100-mile march to the Stuart household, Lara House, a mansion near the small village of Lara in the Wicklow Mountains. Gertz later recounted his hike to Lara House in dramatic detail in his Irish Times article and his decoded messages. It included this near-death incident. On my second night march, I came to a bridge over the River Boyne at the border of County Mid and County Kildare. A police checkpoint lay in wait. I wondered if this was a regulation checkpoint or if news of my arrival had spread. There was no way I was getting across the bridge in my flight suit, so I sneaked down to the riverbank and waded into the river underneath the bridge. I could hear the voices of the police officers above. The mumbles were just about audible above the rush of the freezing river. I waded into the water until the ground under me disappeared. Paddling across, I kicked my legs against a strong current, but I was being dragged downstream. If I drifted far enough, I'd pass right under the bridge and lose my cover. But I was also being dragged down under the water. My jumpsuit had become seriously waterlogged. The weight of it was pulling me down under the surface. I struggled to keep my head above the waterline. Mouthful after mouthful of water flowed down my throat. Finally, my feet hit against the riverbed, and I was able to wade slowly forward until I reached the bank. I was desperate to cough, but afraid if I did, it would give me away. I moved up the side of the bridge until I was well out of earshot. And once I started coughing, I couldn't stop. My flight suit had almost killed me. So I removed my uniform and stashed it under a bush. I marked it with a stone hoping I could retrieve it later. Exhausted, soaking wet, and weak from the hunger, I collapsed in a ditch. Gertz woke up the next day, glad to be alive, but still a long way from his destination. He decided he needed to quicken his pace. Night marches alone were taking too long. By my rough estimate, it would take another 18 to 20 hours. I decided to do an unbroken march the rest of the way. I marched through the day and night, dressed in my white sweater, breeches and black beret. He must have looked quite an odd sight as he marched through rural Ireland in his German airman outfit. I drew some strange looks, but no one intervened. My lips were coated in sores and my feet were covered with blisters. Then my torch finally gave out. I was in darkness, lost. I'd just about given up. I lay down under a tree, resigned to my fate. I said my prayers. But another daybreak came and I was still alive. I managed to climb the tree and scan the hills and fields ahead. The outline of a large estate house in the distance caught my eye. Just as my friend in Berlin had described it. He found Lara House, 
I willed my legs into action. The house grew bigger with each step. With my last ounce of strength, I raised my arm and knocked on the front door. Francis Stewart's wife, Ishult, answered. Yes. Oh, God! What do you want? We don't know the exact conversation Ishult and Gertz had. Gertz left this bit out of his Irish Times article. We know that Francis Stewart gave Gertz a code, a sentence, that he was instructed to say to Ishult upon meeting her. It had to be something she knew only Francis would say. A private joke between her and her husband. We know this because Stuart mentions it in his autobiography. Gertz was to ask Ischolt if she had found... The four-leaf clover. Ischolt let Gertz into the house. It's not clear how long Gertz stayed in the Stuart household, but it was enough time for the German officer and his friend's wife to make a connection. Gertz had an interest in poetry, Eastern philosophy and symbolism, as did Ischolt. If you don't mind me asking, what's the significance of the code your husband gave me? Uh, the four-leaf clover. That was one of Frank's little jokes. Everyone knows the four-leaf clover is supposed to bring you luck, but the myth goes deeper than that. Little girls were told that fairies would hide four-leaf clovers for them to find. If the girl found one, it would assure perfect happiness. The clover's leaves represent the four elements a girl needs for happiness. Hope, faith, luck and love. Do you believe it? No. But I like the symbol. And Mr. Stewart was asking if you have found it yet. Frank thinks I lack all of those characteristics. He can be a mean man, my husband. Would you like him? Ischolt was in her late 40s, with her husband living abroad. She spent a lot of time on her own in the house with her two children. She was described as a chain smoker who played endless games of solitaire and was said to be susceptible to bouts of melancholy. Ischolt's upbringing was unconventional to say the least. She was surrounded by Irish Republicans, Bohemians, writers and believers in the occult. Before Ischolt was born, her mother Maud conceived the child, Georges, with her French lover Lucien Milvois, but the baby died. Maud was distraught and buried Georges in a large memorial chapel in France. Maud separated from Lucien shortly after George's death. But in 1893, she arranged to meet Lucien at their late son's mausoleum, and they had sex on top of George's tomb. Her purpose was to conceive a baby with the same father, so the soul of George would be reincarnated in their new child. Ischold was born as a result. In 1903, after a whirlwind courtship, Maud married John McBride, a prominent Irish Republican. Ischolt's half-brother, Sean McBride, was born in 1904. Maud and John separated in 1905. Maud took the children and moved to France, declaring she'd never return to Ireland as long as John McBride was still alive. W.B. Yeats would visit the family often in France. He became a surrogate father to Ischolt. Yeats encouraged Ischolt's writing and said she had great talent as a poet. He called her his darling child. Then Yeats proposed marriage to Ischolt when she was 22. Ischolt declined the offer. The family returned to Ireland in 1916 after John McBride's death in the Rising. Ischolt was widely considered a great beauty and able to speak her mind. She attracted the admiration of many literary figures. In 1920, when Ischolt was 26, she eloped to London with a 17-year-old Irish-Australian writer, Francis Stewart. 
They later married and settled in Ireland with their two children, until Francis took a teaching position in a university in Germany, just before the outbreak of World War II. Ischold herself wasn't directly involved in Irish republicanism, but because of her family links, she knew some people she thought would be willing to help Gertz. Why don't you get some sleep in the guest bedroom upstairs and I'll head into town. Get you some normal clothes and call a friend. He'll know what to do. The lady of the house helped me up the stairs. Moments later, I heard the main door slam shut. She was gone. The house was quiet. I drifted off to sleep, half thinking I may be woken up by a group of policemen. While he slept, Ischold went into Dublin. She bought Gertz a new suit and shoes in Switzer's department store in Grafton Street. Then she went to a hotel and called a family friend, Seamus O'Donovan. The two of them agreed to meet back at Larrick House. Seamus O'Donovan, or Big Jim as most knew him, was a former IRA member, a veteran of the War of Independence and the Civil War. At this point, Jim was in his 40s and appeared to have left the revolutionary life behind him. He was a senior manager in the ESB, the State Electricity Supply Board. Outwardly, Jim seemed to be a family man with a good job who kept to himself. Back in the Civil War, he was the IRA's chief explosive expert. But when the Civil War ended and the new Irish state started cracking down on IRA activity by interning or executing its members, Jim decided to get out. He managed to survive his violent past almost fully intact. He lost three fingers from his right hand. He disguised his injury by wearing a glove. In August 1938, eight years after Jim had left, the chief of the IRA, Sean Russell, called on his old comrade. Russell's goal was to enlist his friend's help in designing a bombing campaign on English soil. Russell and O'Donovan were the only two surviving members of the IRA general staff who had opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty in January 1922. Despite being on the state payroll and having a young family, O'Donovan agreed to come back into the fold. In 1939, the IRA declared war on Britain. Before launching the sabotage plan, or S-Plan, an ultimatum was issued to the British government. They had four days to withdraw troops from the north of Ireland, an impossible deadline to meet. A total of 300 explosions rocked Birmingham, Liverpool, Coventry, Manchester and London in January of that year. It resulted in 10 deaths and 96 injuries. Two IRA members were captured and executed, but Jim was never formally implicated. In reality, the S-Plan had nothing to do with forcing a British withdrawal from the North and everything to do with attracting the attention of the Germans. Russell saw Hitler as the only European leader capable of destroying Britain. His logic was that with England on her knees, nothing could prevent a German-backed reunification of Ireland. The Germans noticed all right. The Abwehr sent word to the IRA that they would like to meet, and Jim was chosen to make the trip to Germany to start the talks. The Nazis held Jim in high regard because of his part in the organisation of the S-Plan. They even gave him a code name, Agent Hero. In 1939, Jim and his wife visited Germany on three separate occasions. He met with various members of the Abwehr, 
but even though O'Donovan visited Germany several times, he never once met Hermann Goertz. This was about to change. Ischolt returned to Lauer House and Jim O'Donovan arrived a few minutes later by car. I awoke to the sound of the door slamming shut again. I could hear several voices downstairs. She was back. I had slept straight through. I crept sheepishly downstairs. Mr. Gertz, you're up. We brought you some new clothes from Switzer's. Thank you. Mr. Gertz, I'm Jim. I'll take you to who you're looking for, if you'll follow me. Gertz got into Jim's car and they left Lara House together. Gertz couldn't believe it. Stumbling across an impressive contact like Jim O'Donovan, Agent Hero, was an incredible stroke of good fortune. Yes, I finally had a bit of luck on my side. I felt like I was getting somewhere. He seemed like a fine man. I thought if he was a reflection of what the rest of the IRA were like, then this mission may be very worthwhile. O'Donovan must have been excited too, because now the Germans were taking the IRA seriously enough to send an envoy. You'll be staying in our safe houses from now on. I'll take you to see the chief tomorrow and you can radio our proposition back to your people. Ah, yes. There's one issue with that. I misplaced my radio transmitter when I landed. It was tethered to another chute. Do you think you could send your men out to find it? We can't send men out traipsing around the whole countryside, can we? People will ask questions. Well, could you find me a new radio then? I still have my cipher book and bandwidth frequencies, so all I need is a decent radio to send coded messages back to our Grand. Listen, we'll see if we can sort you out with a radio. The chief might know someone. Is it chief? Mr. Russell? Sean Russell is dead. God rest him. Might have just missed him. He was over in Berlin. We got word he died on the way back. What was the cost? You know? Something about a U-boat. It wasn't clear at the time how the chief of the IRA had met his end. Russell was visiting Germany. He was due to meet Gertz. But there was a mix-up and Gertz ended up leaving before Russell had a chance to brief him. Russell was catching a lift back to Ireland in a German U-boat. He became ill during the journey, complaining of stomach pains. The crew of U-65 didn't include a doctor, and Russell died 160 kilometers short of Galway. He was buried at sea. Following the return of the submarine to Germany, an inquiry was set up by the Abwehr into Russell's death. The conclusion was that Russell had suffered a burst gastric ulcer and without medical attention he had died. But a number of conspiracy theories arose around the subject of Russell's death. One theory was that he was poisoned on board the U-boat by the Abvar. Other more popular theories involved his assassination by the Irish government or the British Secret Service, or that it was a joint operation between the two of them. Something about a U-boat. All I know for sure is he's dead. Most likely it was either the Brits or Dev's free staters. They're hard to tell apart these days. Devalier has been executing our boys for months now. But I thought your fight was with the British, not your own government. They're as bad as each other these days. But yeah, that's what the plan is about. Before Sean left, he put an acting chief in charge. We'll be meeting him, and he'll fill you in. This was quite a bit confusing to me at the time. He seemed to hold the Irish Prime Minister, Mr. Devalier, in more contempt than the British Empire. And this wasn't very helpful for my mission. It was my job to get them to concentrate on British military targets in England or in the six counties. 
when I finally heard what the plan was, I started to worry about what I was getting myself into. Gertz was brought to the house of Stephen Held in South Dublin, where he was invited to stay for a few days. Held was an IRA sympathiser, and he too had visited Germany with the intention of establishing links between the IRA and the Nazis. A meeting was arranged for Gertz and the chief to discuss the IRA's plans for how they intended to cooperate with the Germans. The Irish police, the Gardaí, knew about the meeting. They were watching from a parked car outside Held's house. Inside, Gertz was getting his first introduction to the new chief of the IRA, Stephen Hayes. <laughs> so, the Germans have finally arrived. Sean Russell said he'd help us, but now he's dead. You wouldn't have anything to do with that, would you? Ex excuse me? I found it very difficult to understand most of what the chief was saying, if I'm honest. The combination of his very thick accent and his slurred, drunken speech made it difficult for even his own men to understand him at times. Hayes was under quite a bit of pressure, and it was beginning to show. The IRA was in crisis. Not only had its leader disappeared under unusual circumstances, but its numbers were dwindling. Russell was already struggling to keep the IRA together, as veteran members were growing old and the Irish government was intent on rounding up and executing its members. IRA membership had further diminished as a result of the much-hyped recruitment drive for the Irish Army and the newly formed reserve force, the LDF. And infighting was making it hard for the organisation to stay focused. Russell's last great hope was an alliance with the Nazis. Stephen Hayes was sceptical of this strategy, even before the former chief disappeared, but now he was even more paranoid. Now see here, Gert. Dev has eyes and ears everywhere. Special branch are watching every move we make. You'd swear they were walking among us. And everyone knows the Free State is in bed with the British. The feckers, we fought off together. They've gone running back to Daddy. Oh, then you show up out of the blue. How do we know you're not a spy for the Free Staters, huh? I'm here at a great risk to myself. If your government caught me, I'd be interred, or I may even be shot. Oh. So you're in the same boat as the rest of us, so, Herr Gertz. <laughs> huh. Apologies for my rudeness. <laughs> we can't never be too careful. And there are informers everywhere, you see. We can't trust no one. They're not with the Free State anyway. They are desperate to appear neutral in this war. And there's no denying the German head in you. <laughs> You're certainly not a Brit either. Is he, lads? So then, in my book, you might just be the most trustworthy man in this room. Go on, Liam. Show him the plan there. Hayes pointed to a plump 60-year-old man in the corner of the room. A former civil servant named Liam Gaynor, originally from Belfast. He looked a bit flustered to be called upon, but quickly composed himself. He unrolled a map of Ireland Here's the map and began the rattling off a pre-rehearsed speech. We're proposing a German-led offensive of the six counties in the north, supported by IRA forces. We envisage a German amphibious landing at Loch Foyle, 
while the IRA will stage a simultaneous ground offensive beginning in County Leitrim with a front on Lower and Upper Loch Erne here. Our forces will join together in a pincer movement here, drive on to Belfast and ultimately the liberation of Ulster. Then we can hold the territory while your lads use Ulster as a jumping off point to invade Britain. Now we think we need approximately 50,000 German troops. We have 5,000 sworn in IRA members, 1,500 in Ulster, but it can also count into further 10,000 men in the north and 15,000 in the south to take up arms with us too, should a revolt take place. But we'll need arms first. We could commandeer an island, Aaron Moore might do, or Tory, and a German U-boat could dock and transfer the arms all in one go. When Gaynor finished, Gertz sat in silence for a second or two, while the rest of the men tried to gauge his reaction. Then, finally, he spoke up. Well, but how... Yes, I, I can send these options back, but there's one slight issue. I didn't even dare bring up the most glaringly obvious fault with it, which none of them seemed to contemplate, even for a second. How in heaven's name were we supposed to land a German force of 50,000 on the Ulster coast? We'd have to circumnavigate Britain first or go all the way around the other way. And it's very hard to sneak a couple of hundred ships past the enemy. The plan was ridiculous, but Gertz couldn't let on how disappointed he was. He had to keep these men on side. His main objective was to ensure the IRA focused on British targets in the north of Ireland, or to utilise their agents in England for sabotage attacks on British infrastructure. The Germans were not interested in a near impossible invasion of Ireland, backed only by a few hundred unarmed IRA recruits. He had to find a way to get word back to Germany fast. In the meantime, he had to humour the IRA. Right. It'll need a code name then. The plan. Plan Kathleen. That's what I scribbled down on the scraps of paper. After Kathleen Nihulahan, the physical embodiment of Ireland. But my main concern wasn't the plan. It was getting a radio so I could report back that the IRA were hopeless and if my command could arrange for my return to Germany. But before I could steer the conversation back to more practical matters... The front door burst open. A group of Garda Special Branch officers filed into the house. They started checking rooms. Gertz and his IRA colleagues stood up and ran in different directions. Despite the panic, Gertz managed to make his way to the back of the house. I ran into the backyard and hid between a wall and a small alley. I could hear the guards running around the house. I hopped the wall and walked down the street very calmly. Mr. Hayes called out to me from the car. I jumped in and we drove away. Stephen Held was caught and arrested by the Gardaí. His house was thoroughly searched. I felt a deep, sickening feeling in my stomach. My coded diary, my US counterfeit currency and my jacket and hat would surely be discovered by the authorities. Not to mention the map for Plan Kathleen. I was distraught, but Mr. Hayes seemed strangely resigned to it all. End of episode one. Our story continues in episode two. Thank you.